Good day, everyone, and welcome to this week's Global Intelligence Update webinar. Today, we've got a special guest, Steve Johnson, who will be joining us and talking about the legacy lives uh, are not created, they are lived. So um, for those that don't know who Steve is, Steve has over 45 years of experience in wildlife, wildlife management across the African continent, turning wildlife into business and business into wildlife. And as a son of the soil, Africa is etched, Africa is etched, etched into his being, having been introduced into three indigenous tribes in South Africa, in the Southern Africa, sorry. His passion for growing leaders across Africa drives his enthusiasm, energy, and deep insights. Providing wisdom from the waterhole, he infuses his stories with the messages of legacy-based leadership with wildlife and African folklore. Using metaphors that highlight the life's increasingly complex challenges, likely liking nothing more than attempt to address our world's wicked problems. Wow, what a what an introduction, Steve. <laughs> you know, thanks. Thanks very much for that. Yeah. You know, and, uh, quite an interesting topic, I have to say. Mm. You know, bringing um, nature into to business and the teachings that we get from there. So, um, Steve, if you don't mind, I'd like to, to kick off the session and uh, throw you with some questions. Sure, go ahead. Hi to everyone. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so, so, Steve, what is your, your legacy-based leadership, uh, the LBL approach that you have developed? What makes it different from the many general leadership approaches that are out there? Legacy-based leadership um, is something that evolved, um, and I'll come to some of those stories, but essentially um, it, it speaks to the fact that, you know, your legacy isn't what somebody reads out at your funeral. That, that is, those are words and, and, and they describe some of your life. But the real legacy is what you do every day, how you treat people, how you make people feel, the good things that you do, all the little um, moments throughout a day where you actually impact on people's lives. And it's the sum of all of those everyday events that eventually create what people perceive to be your legacy. Um, but in, by, in doing that, my approach is that it, it fosters a culture and um, an environment of doing good stuff and wanting to make a change in our world and leave the world a better place and to have people um, be considered in, in, in the way that you treat them um, and how, how you might want to be treated as well. So it's, it's essentially that you live your legacy every day and, and you've got to be aware of that. You've got to be conscious of it and it, it has to have meaning to you. So oh. that, that is the, the, the actual fundamental core of that. And it, it came to be over quite a, a amount of time um, in, in my wildlife uh, kind of journey in life. Um, but it all started really when I was much younger. I, I can remember I grew up on a farm in Zimbabwe. And um, <clears throat> the, the, some of the, the very first moments I remember, my, my brother had woken me up very early one morning um, on our on our farm and he'd, he'd seen a lilac breasted roller and for those of you that are, are, are you know people of the bush who like going on safaris it's a beautiful beautiful African bird and he he used to like collecting the eggs you take one egg from a nest and he had a whole collection of birds eggs he was older than me and he he took me out early one morning because he'd seen a lilac-breasted roller in a copy in a hill, um, rocky outcrop near our farm, um, about a kilometer from the house. And as we were walking along this very long and narrow path through the bush, going to the, the kopi, um, the sun was just rising at that point in time and stretching out its very long fingers of sunlight across the, the, the grassland. Um, and it was a cold winter's morning and the, 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 the grass was growing over the path. And I was only four years old, not very big. And all the dewdrops were splashing my face as I brushed the, the grass away. 
And I, at one point, looked into the sunrise, and it was just like the most amazing experience because the sun rays were bouncing through the dewdrops, which were like prisms, and it was like kaleidoscope of, of lights, absolute light show. And it, it was so fascinating for me. I was mesmerized. I just was watching as the grass seeds waved in the morning. Uh, it was lights and it, um, uh, Colors were flashing in front of me. And it was in that moment, it was in that very moment that the, the, the seeds of meaning came into my life. That I just had this experience that nature was beautiful. Um, and subsequent to that, I, I um, had a, 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 an opposite experience of when I was 12 years old on a farm in Zimbabwe, I was visiting some friends for Christmas. And he had other friends there with, with him. Um, and they were playing a game and they excluded me from the game, but very brutally, they just told me to go away and you know, just go. Um, and, you know, a 12 year old's psyche is very fragile, you know, and to be just told to go away and like you mean nothing. Um, and there was a copy behind that farmhouse as well. And so I climbed up on, onto the copy, actually being totally. Um, excluded from their group, um, and I was I was just broken. I, I, how could my friend? I travelled all the way from Cape Town. We'd moved to Cape Town at that point in time, and I've gone back for Christmas. How could my friend treat me like that? How I could allow the other friends to also treat me like that? And I climbed up up the copy onto a very big boulder and was just sitting there sobbing, thinking, you know, betrayed and humiliated. And as I looked down over this wonderful Zimbabwe savannah landscape, a calmness came over me, and it was it was the the natural element around me, and the quietness, and this beauty of the savannah in front of me. And it was in that moment that two things happened. I I, I made a commitment to myself that I would never allow people to treat me. Or others unfairly like that, and, and to 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 bully them and to um, exclude them. But it also made me realize that those natural, beautiful places that we have, Table Mountain, where you are there, Chris. I used to climb Table Mountain almost every day, and I'm not joking. Um, I lived in the gardens, and um, I used to run up to Kloof Neck Road, and then up the side of the, the mountain and look down over Camps Bay and watch the sunrise sunset. Um, and that, and that, that gave me purpose in life that I wanted to protect our wonderful environment. And so I went back and I joined national parks in Zimbabwe. Once I finished at university of Cape town. Um, and it, the, the wonderful experiences I had there, in in my years, twelve years in Zimbabwe's parks, um, formed a lot a lot of my perception on on the way that we in our world need to be and treat other people. Um, I remember being on patrol with one of my early mentors, Sergeant um, in Glovu, and we were on a patrol. When we parked under a, a, a big, big uh, monkey thorn tree at a waterhole, and we we're watching elephants coming down to drink, and he was an Indabele man. And as we sat there quietly watching, he said, "In Tambini and I, I didn't understand. In Debele at the time. So I turned to him and I said to him, Petros, his first name, what what did you just say there? And he said, Mr. Steve, he always used to call me Mr. Steve. Mr. Steve, you see that elephant herd there? And I said, yes. He said, if you watch them, you'll see one thing. That in that herd, every elephant belongs. And no elephant is left behind. 
And that resonated so deeply into my psyche that it 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 formed my perspective on life. Is is that you don't allow people to be excluded. You 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 make them feel like they belong, and you make sure no one's really left behind. And it's been an, an ethos of of mine right throughout my career. Um, when I moved to different parks and different countries and different jobs. Um, but it also formed the basis of my leadership approach, the legacy-based leadership, is that if you are going to want to have a legacy and leave a legacy of substance and of meaning, then it must come from a deep place within you that you too, as the leader, need to have meaning in your life. You have to have from the meaning some kind of purpose and through the purpose have that passion to to work with other people and to help them grow and become and to reach the potential that they they have in their lives um so so that's the the very summary journey of how the the, the actual elements of this perspective on leadership has come about well very a very interesting story steve um touching i have to say and the fact that that you bring nature into it it's amazing uh i myself i'm a, a deep nature lover so it's yeah very cool to hear <laughs> yes. and um yeah. now, talking about the legacy-based mm -hmm. leadership um you might have answered my next question already what would you say or, or tell me more about the, the legacy side of um, the approach from legacy-based leadership Sure. So a lot of people in life ha have some sense of meaning um, that they've um, crafted or ha has come to them through experiences in your life. Do you know, as I mentioned there, being up on that rock and being treated so badly, um, if, if you think back through many of the great leaders that, that – are in our lives and that are historically, you know, in our minds. Um, I, I think of Mandela and Gandhi and um, even uh, people like J.F. Kennedy and all, many, many great leaders, okay. Often their meaning in life is forged in some kind of trauma or very difficult situation. You know, Mandela, a lot of the meaning in his life Came because he was treated and ostracized as, as, as a black person um, and he suffered in jail. Gandhi also was treated very badly and put in jail in India for his views. Um, strangely enough, um, Kennedy, you might think, came from some very, very rich family that was well-known and everything like that. But he was ostracized in his early life because his parents were immigrants from Ireland. And at that point in time in America's history, those immigrants were seen to be kind of the, 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 the outcasts, you know, they, they were new to their society and, and the background of being Irish at that point in time in America was not good. And so he was ostracized and that drove him to be the leader that he was. And so a lot of people, have this ability, or not the ability, but the, 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 the meaning and purpose forged in their response to what that trauma was. Viktor Frankl, the, 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 the um, very famous um, World War II psychologist um, who survived the, the Nazi um, concentration camps by just a, a mental mindset that he created for himself. Um, and he he said that that it, the moment between that little microsecond between <clears throat> when you have to make a choice of something, whatever it is, whether you go left or right, or you do something good or something not so good, that microsecond is the choice that you have in life, and that's what that microsecond. Each time you make those decisions, whether you step off a 
the pavement into the road and a car smacks you or not. Okay, it's that microsecond that determines your directions in life. And so when you have these traumas or you have traumas in your life, it's that path that you choose to take that is so fundamental in providing you with your meaning and your purpose. And that meaning and purpose changes in time. My, my purpose, as I mentioned, was to um, protect our natural environment and wildlife. But many years into my career, in fact, uh, about seven years into my career in Zimbabwe, what I realized that in Zimbabwe, 60% of the wildlife in Zimbabwe was outside of national parks. 40% were in protected areas. And so we were spending all our time protecting 40% of the animals, while the other larger proportion was out amongst the people in the communities, you know, terrorizing the communities in their villages, destroying their crops. And what I said that you've got enough people in the national park system then, I went to the, 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 the executives and I said, I want to protect the animals outside the parks and work with the communities. And so what became my meaning, that shift in my meaning and purpose in life from wanting to just look after wild animals, it now shifted to wanting to look after the people <clears throat> so that they would look after the wild animals and make sure that the people in those rural communities, not only in Zimbabwe, but across Southern Africa, that they got something out of it. They got some value out of living amongst the animals peacefully not wanting to just kill them because they were on, you know, in their fields or because some lions killed their cattle. <clears throat> um, that if they got something back in return, some financial benefit or some physical benefit, then they would more likely want to be the custodians of, of um, the wildlife and the biodiversity than the natural habitat. And that shift <clears throat> to people in my even latter years, um, I saw that the, the, the more that you put into the per people side of things, the greater chance we have of protecting our wildlife populations that are immensely under threat at the moment. You know, you might not actually know the figures, but some many centuries ago, we had millions of elephants in Africa. I'm doing quite a lot of research on it at the moment. And there's a lot of figures bandied around 25 million at some stage, thousands, 10,000 years ago, 5 million more recently. In, in 1974, Douglas, Ian Douglas Hamilton, a very, very um, early pioneer of ecology, who lived in Kenya, he did a lot of research into the, the elephants in Africa. And um, he was asked to go and give a report to Congress in America. And at that point, reporting to Congress there, he said there were 1.4 million elephants left, 1974. At this point in time, some, what, 50 years later, we have less than 400,000 elephants left, of which 300,000 are in Southern Africa. And of, of that 300,000, about 200,000, about half of the elephants left are all in an area centered around Victoria Falls in, in Angola, Botswana, Namibia, Zimbabwe, and Zambia. And, and there's a very big push on at the moment from Asia to, to actually poach the elephant for their tusks. Okay. So we are the last bastion of the remaining populations of elephant. And, and I'm sure all of you listening here know that lions and elephants are the icons of Africa. You know, Disney films and everything have immortalized them as, you know, that's those are those are our brand of Africa. Is is you know, the, the uh, stories around lions and elephants, etc. The Lion King being one of those films. 
And the only the only real way that we are going to save them is by making sure that those people that live, especially in that area around Victoria Falls, what we call Kaza, that's where the confluence of the Kavango River and the Zambezi River come together. So it's the Ka and the Za of the Kaza. <clears throat> um, and if we don't have those people there getting some kind of return from tourism, from having employment in the lodges or running lodges themselves or um, providing some business support to uh, the tourism industry generally, uh, or if we're not helping the communities to be much more cohesive in their governance, then they are going to be part of the problem and not the solution. They're going to be the poachers and, and actually be the ones that actually reduce the populations. And so that, that part of my journey now has, has taken me in my legacy-based leadership is, is, is to focus much more on people. I, I, I have a little kind of story that I was with a good friend of mine, my son, myself, and my friend from America. <clears throat> we try and do a safari every year um, to do wildlife photography. We, we're passionate about it. And we were actually sitting under a tree in the Chobe National Park. And I mentioned to my colleague, John, from America, I said to him, you know, we're very lucky to be allowed to be sitting here watching the waterhole and taking photographs because the, the human population has had such an impact in taking away the natural land, converting the natural space that's available to elephants for farmland. And in a project I ran with the American government, we convinced communities to move away from certain areas to recreate the old migration routes that were from Botswana through the, what was the Caprivi and into Angola and into Zambia, um, not only for elephants, for the buffalo and zebra and wildebeest and big migrations, almost equal to what we now know in, in Serengeti with the migrations there. We used to have the same thing in Botswana. Massive, massive migrations right, right from the north of Botswana down into areas near Kimberley. Um, and, in, and our human occupation of that land meant that we had to convince the people to move away and recreate those corridors. And as we were sitting under that tree, taking our photographs and I just told John that, you know, that we were in the area where there was a recreated corridor. He said to me, boy, Steve, that's a massive legacy that you're leaving. And it was at that moment that something clicked in my head. I'd never seen all of that work I'd been doing up to that point. That stage was about 10, 15 years ago. So 30 years into my career, I'd never seen that I'd been doing my work to create a legacy. I was just doing what I loved doing, I had a passion for, and I was doing good things in my mind, meaningful things. And it was then that I realized that if he felt that was part of my legacy, what are other people's legacies that people in Johannesburg or Cape Town or wherever that are in urban areas, what, what are those legacies that they can be leaving? Because you can't do wildlife corridors in Johannesburg, you know, <clears throat> it's a bit crazy. Um, so what are the things that they do? And some people might think that the, the huge wealth they've built up might be the legacy in, in their family or that they've built massive big skyscrapers and they're an architect and this is a symbol, you know, some monument to their architectural prowess. Those are legacies. They, they are. But then we, we need to be actually analysing what those sub-elements of the legacies are in terms of meaning and purpose. So are you... So what bubbles around in my mind often is, so if you've now created so much wealth or gained so much wealth, 
I'm not going to say how nowadays in, in our context, but if you gain millions and billions, what are you going to do with that if it's locked up in a bank and it's not being you know, productive in the mainstream society, but it's, it's there and not being really functional? And so what, what is the meaning that you do? You can be wealthy. I'm not saying don't be wealthy, but I'm saying be wealthy with meaning and purpose and, and, and compassion and, and caring for others and, and their well-being. Um, and so that's what now becomes part of the legacy side. Your question was, what is the legacy? Is each of us needs to examine what is our legacy? You know, have, have, have any of you on, yeah, on the webinar, have you ever thought about your legacy? What, what you would like people to remember you for, okay? And I'm sure you all know the, 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 the saying that people don't remember what you did to them or what you said to them, but they remember how you made them feel. And to me, that is the essence of a legacy, is how, how you made people feel. Did you make people in our society feel better because you did a lot of good things that um help them get employment or they got the services that they need the sewage and the roads and the electricity etc you know uh, and their well-being looked after their well-being um I've, I've got a friend who's just um in rwanda she she's just moved from a very um prominent position in corporate to become a very senior person in in the the, the, the um, reserve bank in Rwanda, because I'd been coaching her, and I you know made her think deeply about her legacy and 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 her purpose and meaning in life, and she saw that she couldn't do very much in the former position that she had in corporate, but if she took this senior job in in the reserve bank she could actually make a difference in a lot of people's lives in, in, in making sure that the money and everything like that is, is directed in the right processes and is keeping the, the economy of Rwanda very buoyant. And so just going back to your question there, Chris, is, is you know, the, the legacy is far greater than that little piece of paper that somebody reads out at, at, you know, when you no longer are on this planet. Okay. It's, it's a much more of a daily thing happening, doing goodness every day. That's, that's my mantra is, is do good things every day, all day. So that, that's my perspective on legacy. Well, no, thank you for sharing Steve. It's um, quite insightful. And um that leads me to, to the next question, which is, you, you know, you bring nature to business and business to nature. Who would you say is a legacy-based leadership aimed at? Is it applicable to corporate sectors or, or other sectors? It, it's, it's I, I give that a lot of thought. Okay. And my part of my new purpose in life, okay, is is to influence the influencers, okay, with with this perspective on life, and and I I love to think big. I've got this wonderful story when I was studying in MBL or MBA at um at UNISA, and and we all had to if that's distance learning, you know, you vert what we call virtual learning at the moment, but in those days we didn't have the internet like this. But we had to go for the very first day at, to UNISA into the big hall and be there present um, to kick off the whole three-year um, study course. Um, and then we used to be in our little groups all around the country doing our work, you know, studying. But we were three, three hundred of us. Three hundred of us were that cohort of of that start of the MBA, MBL, and. Um, the vice chancellor came into the auditorium, huge, very imposing Afrikaans gentleman. And he walked up onto the podium and he took the longest of times and he looked around at everybody. And we were all waiting for these 
pronouncements to come from this very high person in academia. And he looked and he looked and he looked and we all went absolutely quiet. And then he tapped the microphone, duk, duk, duk. And he said, good morning, everybody. Yeah, good morning, kind of thing. You heard this rumble. He says, I'm not going to take too much of your time. All I'm going to tell you is you have to think big to do big. Have a good morning and enjoy your course. And that was it. <laughs> and that stuck in my mind hugely. And it had the impact that he intended. Okay. I, I think big. Okay. So when you ask, is it directed at corporates? It's directed even wider than that. Okay. Yes, corporates are part of that. But my, my goal, my vision is to be the influencer of 20 of the most influential people on earth. Okay. The Richard Bransons and those people. I, I want to be one of the people that helps them focus their wonderful talents and, and, and their wealth and their capabilities in the right direction because they are very influential. From a corporate perspective, what my research has showed me is that if a, if a company, through its leadership and the people within the organization, know that they are being treated with fairness, they're treated with compassion and caring, and that the leadership is not only compassionate and caring and concerned about their well-being, but about the well-being of people in our society in general and our environment and our world in general. And, and research has shown, research in South Africa has actually shown that the more that your staff in your corporate sees that the company itself through the leadership has a very meaningful and active social responsibility program that's not just a tick the box thing but really really makes big efforts to 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 look at the well-being of the wider society that the, the organization exists within and where it does its business those staff members are 60 percent more likely to be absolutely loyal to that company the survey that 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 I looked at said that those sixty percent, how they indicated their absolute loyalty was that they would, if if that if the company had that intention and that uh, way of dealing with the corporate um, responsibility, they would stay with that company for the whole of their career. That's how loyal they would be. Okay, so from a corporate point of view, if everybody is working from the same hymn sheet, that everybody's looking after each other, they want to do goodness, they want to make sure that no one is falling behind like that elephant herd, that some, no one actually doesn't belong, that they might be excluded through bullying or um, autocratic leadership styles that, that treat them as if they are just numbers and not human beings within the organization they're having that humanness within the organization as a focus if we can get organizations through coaching and team building exercises and then through influencing the corporate executives to the point that they see that they have to have it as mainstreamed in as an in integral part of their doing business not ticking the boxes, okay, that they, they want their organization to leave this world a better place or to make it a better place. That is where legacy-based leadership actually fits in with the corporate side of things. Okay. So is, is that what you would say would happen if um, the companies, the corporates would adopt the legacy-based leadership? It, it would go a long way to... To making that happen uh, and to making the workspace 
a better environment, you know, where people feel their well-being is being looked after and, and that they that they are meaningful to the organization and that they have meaning and purpose in the organization. And they 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 want to get out of bed in the morning because they're going to go and do good stuff. Okay. And whatever it is that their function is in the organization, it's contributing to this larger outcome that the company does, whether it's making shoes or venture capital or whatever. But the the outcome of that organization doing its business, okay, makes the world a better place, makes our society a richer place, a more diverse place, and where people feel they belong. You know, there, there are so many people in our society nowadays that just don't feel they belong. They, 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 they live on the fringes from a financial point of view. You know, they, they, they are economic refugees to the periphery of our society that they battle even to, to make ends meet day to day. And yet there are people who, I'm not proposing here that we come into some communist regime or something, um, but there are people out there that have so much wealth that they're doing nothing with that wealth that is, is, is of consequence. I, I, I have an example that I like to, 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 to show people or to tell people about is if you Google group elephants, you'll come up with a corporate that was developing, I think it's ESPs, if I remember correctly. That was what their work was. And they've flipped it entirely the other way around. They, they, they now have their company as being a social engineer, a, a social contributor. And they are merely players in that process. So they're not existing to make profit and to kind of make people wealthy. Okay. It, they've flipped their whole corporate process around 180 degrees. And they say, making sure we have what I call a quadruple bottom line, not the, the triple bottom line. The old triple bottom line was people, profits, and um, people, profits, and planet. Okay, so the the, the people, society, the, the the profit business side of things, and the environment. To me, there's always been a fourth element missing there. And and in I, I'm working with Landy and Mike, actually, I was at a meeting of one of their meetings recently. Um, and I was asked to, to talk, and uh, I said to, a thought suddenly came to me, and I said to everybody, get out a piece of A4 paper and draw a triangle on it and put people, profit, and planet at the corners of the triangle, which they did. And I said, now draw another triangle that makes it a diamond so that there's one further point. And I said, what is that point? And no one could tell me. And I said, that is what some people might see as a spiritual side of things, might be our altruistic side of things, might be a metaphysical side of things, but it's the intangible side of our being. It's the, the absolute core essence of our meaning and purpose is that spiritual kind of space, okay? And in that space, Okay, it, it completes the, the, the three, making it the fourth. And that fourth is just in your organization, just the, the intention to be good to others and not to wish them harm or, or treat them in a bad way or exclude them or not want to deal with them. And that, that to me fulfills the, 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 triple, the quadruple bottom line, as I call it, and if everybody had an ethos in their organizations like that, okay, we wouldn't have so much conflict, tension within the organization because everybody would be looking after each other's backs. But also we'd be looking outwards to the society writ large and making sure that they're all taken care of as well and, and they're not excluded economically, physically, socially. Wow. Thank you, Steve. Um, from, from that, could you say that social responsibility is quite an important uh, part of the approach? 
Yes, you know, but it, it's a very important part of the approach. It's it's not the whole approach, okay, because you know it's almost by defining it as corporate social responsibility, you're making it a, a, an add-on, okay. But if if every company had a very good, active, strong, robust, resilient corporate social responsibility element in in their their organization, the world would be a better place, definitely. But we need to be moving to the point where it's looking after each other in the organization and the wider environment and society that we live in. Looking after everybody should just be a natural thing to do. It's not saying, oh, well, that's a corporate social responsibility activity that we're doing there. We've taken blankets to the, the homeless or there's a food bank or something okay it's 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 much more ingrained okay in in how we do business um like i'm talking about group elephant it's just the way you do business it's a mind shift it's a mental change okay well uh, we've actually got a question is if you don't mind jumping to this sure. uh, from stephanie she asked do you think that because people are so disconnected from nature that they do not feel or get their purpose. They are more connected to material and wealth and status. Stephanie, you, you're part of my tribe. You really are. <laughs> and my answer to you is absolutely, absolutely. I research shows hugely um, that if if you are in a natural setting, okay, your your whole psychology, your 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 the neuroscience. You know what's happening in your brain changes fundamentally. Okay, so you know, for I just as an example, if I'm facilitating a workshop, you know, like I do, I work intensively with United Nations um, in in um, in United Nations Environment Program in Kenya and UNDP in Rwanda. I insist that wherever we are holding our workshops, okay, it's in a natural area um, where there's lots of trees and hopefully wild animals and in the, the actual rooms that we use that there's big open windows or that we actually can work outside in those natural settings. I've just come back from running um, a, a strategic planning session for United Nations Environment Program, their five-year global program. Um, and we were on, on Lake Kivu in a hotel there with wonderful, these massive big trees that you get in Kenya, the, those big acacia trees, they, they, they are spectacular. Um, and grazing in, under those trees were herds of zebras, okay? And we were looking out from our conference room to these zebras coming onto the spaces in front of us and everything. And people were just so relaxed and wanting to share and you could just feel that the tensions of being in Nairobi had dropped off their shoulders and they were free to talk and discuss. And so going back to your story, Stephanie, yes, you know, the, the more that we can build our environment to have elements of nature in it, that where there's greenery and, and vegetation in our building spaces, they, they're doing that a lot in Australia now that the, 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 the corporate buildings have to have plants and vegetations actually attached to their buildings. Um, so it, it is that connection and, and that reconnection whenever you can that, that is so fundamental to, to well-being. You know, I, I've done a lot of work in Malawi where because of their very high population density, they were at the core of the, 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 the freedom struggles in, in Zambia, Mozambique, and um, Zimbabwe. And so a lot of the refugees went into Malawi, which was kind of central to those three countries. So they have about 150, sorry, 150 people per square kilometer, whereas South Africa has about, I don't know, 30, and, and Botswana has two people per square kilometer. Okay, Botswana, uh, Malawi has 150 
per square kilometer. And the consequence of that is that they've stripped all of the natural vegetation from at least 60, 70% of the country. It's just barren fields, okay, with no trees, just crops. And they talk, the people there talk about that they've lost their soul. The, the wild animals that were their totems to their tribes. Um, as I mentioned, I've been, um, as you mentioned, um, Chris, I've been made a member of three different tribes. I've been inducted into the Zulu nation, um, the, the Botswana nation, and the Ngorni people in Malawi, uh, where I did a lot of work with them. And um, the, each of the tribes have a totem. So, so my Botswana tribe, okay, which is around Pilansburg, because I helped start Pilansburg, one of the first people there uh, that did that. And I helped when the community left the area to, for it to be created as a national park. I helped them get a lot of big farmland area adjacent to the park. So they made me an, a member of the tribe. And the tribe's name is the Bakhatla people. And their totem is the Kabo, which is the monkey. Okay. And so in, in the tribes, you have the eland can be a crocodile, the lion, the elephant, whatever. In Malawi now, they've lost all of that. And so, you know, it's, it's like you've lost your soul. You, it, it, you've lost part of your spirit that, that used to be there from for thousands of years. So, yeah, Stephanie, um, it's definitely something that is a huge factor in the psychology of, of organizations, you know, operations. No, thanks for sharing, Steve. Uh, I think most of us didn't know that about Malawi. Uh, quite interesting to say. Yeah. Um, jumping back on my, my previous question, I heard you you mentioned add-on, but it, it's it's not an add-on tool that can be taken or, or left at will. Or is it actually something that needs to be mainstreamed into the DNA or fabric of all the of all the corporates? A absolutely. You know, it should be written in and to be a fundamental value. You know, one of the key elements of a legacy is your and meaning and purpose in your life is your values. You know, what are your values? You know, if I were to ask um, Philippe or, or, or Dean, you know, Paula, what, what are your values? I'm sure you've thought about your values, but your values are those things that you hold dear that are your North Star, that 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 make you a moral person. And and um I, I see your hand there, Philippe. I'll come to you now. Um and those values are, are what make up our society. And, you know, <clears throat> in many of our societies across the whole globe, many of those values are just being discarded and thrown away or, and, and, and just like disregarded. Okay. Um, so, oh, you're just clapping. Okay. <laughs> I see. Um, and, and, if we if we're not true to our values, if we don't have that integrity and authenticity, okay, then we can be things will happen in our society that don't look after the welfare of the larger group of people. Okay, um, the, the 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 values in Zimbabwe and in Zambia and Mozambique at the time where they're fighting, even now, still today, Mozambique in that area, the north of Mozambique, there's war happening there. Um, but because those values are, are not the values of the whole nation as such, but they're the very constrained, profit-driven, greed values of a, a few elite that have captured the governance systems, the, the impact of that was that everybody went to Malawi and, and destroyed their wonderful culture, the Chewa culture, it, when I, I've, I've been into it deeply. It had so many beautiful mechanisms of, of making sure people didn't do bad things. You know, they've got something they call there the guluam kulu. Okay, it's like a spirit being. But the spirit being is actually a person from within the village, but no one knows who it is. Okay. And at a, at a point in time, whoever the guluam kulu is, and no one knows who it is, okay, will be on a visit to the other side of the country to go and see his mother or he's going to a funeral or something like that. But he doesn't, or she doesn't. They'll actually go and hide somewhere, and then they will put on a whole big 
set of, of um, um, traditional outfit made from big masks and bits and pieces of fabric and everything like that. And they will appear in the village at night and terrorize people that have been doing bad because when they live in the village, they see who's doing the wrong things. They come back as this spirit being, okay, and they go and, and focus on whoever's done what, you know, who's ever gone and had an affair with another guy's wife or with another husband or something like that and go and point them out, you know, and, and tell everybody that this person's been doing not good stuff. Um, and then they'll disappear, take off their clothing and then come back two days later and say, you know, wow, something's changed here. What's happened? Okay. And they'll say the Gulu Omkulu came, you know, and he like, he sorted us out. You know, whoever was being bad now back in track and everything like that. And so a lot of those lovely traditions have, have been eroded with all of that massive influx of, 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 um, of refugees from different countries. Um, yeah. So, so there are different ways of, of looking at the values and, and um, of making sure that the values are, are adhered to. And, and when we are not accountable as, as collective society, if we are not holding those leaders who are straying from our values that we have as a country or as a nation, or even as a, a city or whatever it is, if we're not holding those people accountable, they're going to do what they like. And then there will be people who will be pushed off onto the fringes and don't belong. And like that elephant herd, you know, it, you know, they will be left behind. We, we, we just really cannot be leaving those people behind like that elephant herd. Yeah, but, yeah no, I agree, Steve. It's um, quite insightful and, and very touching the stories that you've, uh, that you've shared with us. We're running a little bit out of time. And uh, I just want to say one thing that really stick with me is what you asked is, once you're once you're gone, what legacy are you leaving behind? That's uh, quite a big question, something to think about. So, yeah. Steve, I just want to say uh, thank you for your time and thank you for being the guest on our webinar this week. Uh, Absolute really pleasure and a privilege, honestly. Yeah. Thank you so much, Steve. Okay. I hope everyone has a, a great week ahead and thank you for attending. And we'll see you guys again next week. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone.